Kansas City Butcher was bad, this one might really mess you up. So consider yourself warned. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your knowing about everything co-host, knowing about everything crime co-host, Austin. The all-knowing, ever-wise Crime junkie. Man, it's like hard to even say, say all that. That's right. Okay, Austin... Today's a big day. I know. It's a huge day. It's episode 71, and it's also a massive case. One of my favorites. <laughs> okay. So today we are talking about BTK. BTK. We had a lot of requests for this uh, for this case. So just a little background, I guess, how I know about the case is because I am from Shawnee, Kansas, which is like two, uh, two and a half to three hours So they did have kangaroos down town. there. I'm sorry, what? They had kangaroos down there. What? This is the blow the kangaroo case where they killed a lot of kangaroos and the guy got in a ton of trouble. Is that what case this is? <laughs> you asked me yesterday what BTK stand for and I've been thinking a lot about it. And I thought it was blow the kangaroos, like blow them out of the water. <laughs> it was where the guy got in a lawsuit for killing kangaroos. Oh my God. You've been sitting on that for days. You just came out with that so fluently, like you were so convinced. It's you were nuts. so convincing. It's nuts. You think BTK stands for blow the kangaroos. Blow the kangaroos away. I expected better. And it was a, no, I'm just joking. Of course I know what BTK stands for. Go ahead. You're Shawnee. Okay, tell me what it stands for. No, talk, keep your, you're from Shawnee and go ahead. Well, anyway, so Shawnee is just not that far from Wichita. And I just Mm -hmm. remember when he was arrested, it was a big deal. I remember the announcement being on the news. I'm a little older than you, Austin. So Mm -hmm. this was a little. Divide by seven, add two. You barely made it. Divide by two, add seven. You You barely barely made made it. (laughs) Because I'm older. Yeah. So anyway, um, I had a lot of friends from home, you know, requesting this case, people who are familiar with it. So. Okay, I really do want to know what you think BTK stands for, besides blow the kangaroos. That like, was obviously a-, a joke, so people would think, oh, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. But, but B- you really don't, Austin. No, I, <laughs> the, the, the BTK case is wild. I don't want to ruin any details You're by talking not, because everyone it. knows what BTK stands for, and except so do I. for you. No, and so do I. Except for you. Tell me what the B stands for. This is, no, it's Let's stupid. Let's break it down. <laughs> He's just boiled the kids. This is about the case where the guy boiled the kids. Oh my gosh. I don't even know if I want to listen to this one. Austin. I don't know what the hell BTK stands for. (laughs) I've been getting asked this for days, everybody. What is BT what do you think it stands for? I didn't even have the time to Google it. Well, I didn't want you to Google it. That would be cheating. Didn't have the time. Good. Well, now you're gonna have to Google it though. Like I'm not Googling anything you're gonna tell me about it right now. (laughs) Uh, later on, I'm going to have you Google some pictures. Okay. Um, I'm just glad this isn't the Boiled the Kids case. Yeah, that I, don't, was I don't think one. that one exists. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> let's get started. Yeah. For years, the BTK killer was known to the public as BTK, which stood for Bind, bind the, uh, Torture. Bind, Torture, and Kill. Kill. I, 
And see, that was my next guess. That was going to be my third guess because that's what he did. You know? Yeah. Yes. Keep going. This I is do know. this is crazy. <laughs> oh man! So it was an abbreviation and name that he gave himself to claim the reign of terror that he caused between 1974 to 1991. Holy shit! During that span of time, BTK killed 10 people, including two children in Wichita and Park City, Kansas. And he played a taunting game of cat and mouse with investigators and local newspapers. But then communications stopped. For 10 years, nobody heard from BTK, leaving the investigation at a standstill until he started sending letters again in 2004, which ultimately led investigators to a man named Dennis Lynn Rader. Holy crap, babe, I feel like you just gave this synopsis that now everybody knows what the heck happened. He is the longest-running serial killer in U.S. history. So everybody knows about him anyways. Yeah, everyone but you, sweetheart. Okay. All right. So here we go. Dennis Rader. He was born on March 9th of 1945 to Dorothea May and William Rader, a U.S. US Marine veteran. He has three brothers. I can't talk today. He has three brothers, Paul, Bill, and Jeff, which are like the most Dennis, Paul, Bill, and Jeff. Like you couldn't get more generic names than that. But he grew up in Wichita, Kansas, while both parents worked really hard, often leaving the boys to kind of fend for themselves. And people close to the Raider family described Dennis as normal, polite, well-mannered. He was a Boy Scout. He was in the church's youth group. He maintained a C average while he was in school, so maybe not the best student. But by all accounts, he had a normal upbringing. Um, His daughter has gone on to do interviews about Dennis's upbringing and, and child you know, child life, I guess. And she said it was really pretty normal. There was no abuse going on, like nothing. At a young age, Dennis recalled being aroused by very bizarre and unusual things. For example, getting spanked as a child was something that early on turned him on. Wait, he said this later? Yeah. Yeah. So he would call these arousings sparky big time. And he would get into magazines, cut out the ads of female figures, paste them on three by five note cards, and then draw ropes and gags on the pictures. At how old? I don't have the exact ages. I just know that this all started at a very young age. Like, I'm talking as early as like seven or eight, he was being aroused by getting spanked. And then as he continued to grow older, like his, his, I guess, affinity for bondage and torture just kind of snowballed. So anyway, he would carry around these note cards with him. He also said that the sight of chickens waiting to be slaughtered aroused him. And like a tale as old as time, this budding serial killer found pleasure in torturing, killing, and hanging small animals. That's freaking weird. Remember that one documentary we watched in Osama bin Laden where there's this backyard so it's really a slow documentary, but mm-hmm. there's like this backyard and the person walks around shooting birds and stuff. Yeah. People or kids anyway, that show an interest in harming small animals. It's a really bad sign. Just throw the whole kid away. If he's like torturing cats and bunnies, just throw him away. Throw him away. That's kind of rough. <laughs> so anyway, 
Dennis had a way of really compartmentalizing these bizarre sexual fantasies, and he considered them to be a whole different person that he named the Minotaur. And I might be mispronouncing that, but a Minotaur is, if you look it up, a mythical creature portrayed in classical times with the head and tail of a bull, but the body of a man. And as he got older, he would host these motel parties, he'd call them. And he would, it would just be him, party of one, alone in a hotel room, performing erotic asphyxiation on himself. So he would bind his wrists and his ankles, cover his head with a bag, and restrict his breathing while he pleasured himself. And later on, he would take pictures of himself in these positions and, like, keep them. They were Polaroids. I don't know. I mean, he just kept them to, like, refer back to. So after graduating from high school with less than stellar grades, he spent just one kind of, like, hanging out you know, year. What do you call that? Like between high school and college where you just don't do anything. I feel like there's a word for it, but I can't think of what uh, it is. I, yeah, let's, uh, uh, that's right. Lazy. <laughs> Not necessarily. Some people just take that year to figure out if they even want to go to college. So don't piss off some of our listeners. If you're sitting at your parents' <laughs> pool and you have their credit card, it's lazy. <laughs> sure. I don't think he had that situation though. He was probably sitting in a hotel room. Yeah. Tied himself up and jerking head. off. That's what he was doing okay. on his off time. <laughs> That's also lazy. <laughs> it's weird is what it is. So anyway... After that year, he enrolled at the Wesleyan College in Salina, Kansas, but he dropped out at age 21 to enlist in the U.S. Air Force. So after about four years in the Air Force, he was discharged and sent back to Wichita, where he spent a couple years as a reservist. When he got back, he would walk around in people's backyards. He would just literally walk in their backyards and look into their houses, often late at night so he could see into their house. And he got this thrill, like a power trip, from walking around in their backyards and watching them, knowing that they didn't know he was there. Freaking weirdo. So when you're saying this stuff, is this like stuff that after he was caught or something later he talked about? Yes. Yeah, it all came out after the fact. Man, see, I would never, ever, ever look this up and hear about it if I wasn't on this podcast. Well, but a lot of these crime freaking weirdos like you, babe, though, you guys love it. Some some of the stories we talk about are a little more unknown. They're not as popular, but this is like a high profile case. This was on all the major national news stations, so it's not just oh, people from Kansas know about it. Ev- like a lot of people know about it. Maybe not everybody, because obviously you don't know anything, but a lot of people know <laughs> about it. So anyway, he also started doing more like petty crime. He would break into homes and just steal random things. Just for the thrill of it. Just for the thrill of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was 1970 when he met Paula Deitz at Christ Lutheran Church, and it was love at first sight. Their relationship was a bit of a whirlwind. It moved really fast with the pair marrying just one year after they met each other. Wow. And then they moved to Park City, Kansas, which is not far from Wichita. And then they had two children together, Carrie and Brian. So that was a span of how much time where he was seemingly normal, maybe? Or was he still doing all this stuff? He was still doing this, but he was keeping it a huge secret. Any of his bizarre fantasies or sexual interests were a huge secret. He was a very Whenever secretive person. I think person. of that stuff, like that, that episode where the dude was stealing from the massage chicks. Remember? He was the dude that was stealing all the money and killing those chicks and 
The one we did here recently. John Robinson, and he was from Overland Park. Yeah, and that was like episode 60 or something, or 65. Yeah. Like, I it think, was kind of recent, yeah. Yeah, when somebody's doing something in their life, and the people in their life have literally no yeah. clue, it's so strange. It is really strange. It's really frightening, because it makes, it builds this, like, distrust for just people in general. Like, mm-hmm. and babe, this is going to really rock your world when you find more, find out more about this case. Just the just how seemingly normal he was. He was literally like the guy next door. That's why I think a lot of people really were so shocked and terrified by this case. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that and we'll have a whole conversation about it at the end, I'm sure. But I'll get back to the story. So Dennis had trouble finding and keeping a steady job. So he bounced around from job to job. And in the meantime, he would kind of troll the area where he lived, walking around in certain neighborhoods or school grounds, just observing women in the area and kind of taking note of their habits. And then he would begin memorizing their typical schedule. So he would know when they left for work or when they got home from work or when their husband would leave or come home from work and just their usual activities. And in the meantime, he would fantasize about torturing and killing them. And maybe in an attempt to keep himself busy, he enrolled in um, Butler Community College, an elder... Okay, my brother is going to get me for this. It's either... It's El Dorado. I'm pretty sure it's El Dorado, because I would have pronounced it El Dorado, Kansas, but it's apparently pronounced El Dorado. So anyway... He went to Butler Community College in El Dorado, where he earned an associate degree in electronics in 1973. So as time went on, though, these sadistic fantasies really began to just gnaw at him. And it got to a point where he couldn't take just the fantasy. He needed more. He needed to turn them into a reality. So he started planning. He started gathering tools for a hit kit, he called it. And then he chose very carefully. It wasn't random, but once he chose somebody, he started planning very meticulously what he was going to do. So the first murder was the Otero family. And they had recently moved to Wichita from the Panama Canal area when the patriarch patriarch of the family, Joseph Otero, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, Joseph Otero, got a new job working on airplanes. So they packed up and they left their grandparents' home in Panama to head to Wichita. Joseph was only 38 at the time. His wife, Julie, was 33. And together, they had five children. So Charlie was the oldest. He was in high school at the time. Danny and Carmen were in middle school. And then Joseph Jr. and Josephine were in elementary school. So on January 15th of 1974, Charlie had already left for school, as well as Danny and Carmen, because we know high school, middle school, they always start really early. Elementary usually starts late. So Mm -hmm. soon after they left, Dennis approached the back of the house and cut the phone lines from the outside. He broke in through the back door, and he was surprised to find the parents and their two youngest children sitting right there at the kitchen table. Holy shit. What year is this? 74. Okay, just making sure I remember. Their dog, Lucky, started going nuts. So Dennis ordered the father to put the dog in the backyard. And then he gathered the family into the main bedroom and at gunpoint had them all lay down and told them he was a wanted criminal on the run who was only interested in getting money and a car. And they believed him. So they just did what he said, praying out loud that Dennis wouldn't hurt them. 
He tied them up and Joseph complained that he was uncomfortable because he had recently broken a rib from a car accident. So Dennis placed a pillow under his head and I'm sure this is just making them think like, we're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Like at least he's nice enough to put a pillow under my head while he's freaking robbing us. Right. Mm -hmm. But the family's prayers went unanswered as Dennis placed a bag over the father's head and used a cord to suffocate and kill him. At one point, Joseph had torn a hole in the bag. So while Dennis was scrambling around the room trying to manually strangle each individual family member, he had to go back and put a cloth over his head to finish the job. Next, his wife, Julie... He tried to strangle her with his bare hands, but he grew impatient with how long it actually takes to do that. Like three or four minutes, right? Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, that's a long, when you think about that, it's like a long time. And um, anyway, he grew impatient. She passed out. He thought that she was gone. But then when she woke up, he got really upset and just resorted into using a cord or a rope to strangle her on her bed. So little Joey was next. He was only nine years old. He was found. This is miserable already. I know. This is, uh, I I hate to even say it's the worst part. When it involves kids, to me, it is the worst part. But we're just going to get it over with. Uh, So anyway, he was found face down on the floor with multiple bags over his head so that he couldn't tear a hole in it. And then Dennis pulled a chair up next to his body and sat and watched Joey suffer until he knew for sure that he was gone. And they know that because the chair had left impressions in the carpet. So they knew that whoever did this sat and watched. Then 11-year-old Josephine was last and she was strangled and then she was taken downstairs and hung from an exposed sewer pipe in the ceiling of the basement. When she was found... Police found semen on the pipe behind her, not on her, but on the pipe. And it's worth noting here that while it doesn't lessen the crime whatsoever, it's just interesting that Dennis never actually had sex with any of his victims throughout the course of his killing spree. He only ever masturbated at the crime scene, which in my opinion is honestly creepier. Like it's all bad. It's equally as creepy. It all sucks. I guess I just find... I, I don't know if I even find a little bit of solace in the fact that he didn't actually, like, have sex with her. I don't know. It all sucks. Okay, so after the murders, Dennis took a few things with him. Mementos from his crime scene, his first crime anyway, including a radio and the father's watch. And he later said he had no reason for taking, like, he, there was no thought behind what he was going to take. He just took stuff just as a memento. Then he took the family station wagon to a Dillon's grocery store nearby. And later, a witness would testify that she remembered seeing him get out of the station wagon and he was super flustered and shaking like a leaf and that he took the keys, threw them onto onto the roof of the grocery store before realizing that he left a knife behind at the scene. Oh, my God. So he had to drive back to the house in his own car and get the knife and then go home. So... Later that day, when Daniel and Carmen came home from school, they found their parents and their little brother upstairs and thought at first that their parents were just playing a sick joke on them because they're in middle school. 
And then Charlie arrived home shortly after, surprised to find their dog Lucky in the backyard because that was unusual. And then when he came in, he noticed his mom's purse was dumped out in the kitchen found Danny and Carmen. They told him what was going on and he got just a super sick feeling in his stomach. He had just watched the movie a few days prior called In Cold Blood. Do you know about that story? No. A lot of us were like forced to read it in school. but um, I didn't it, read books when I got told to read them in school. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, In Cold Blood, it's about two convicts who killed a family in Kansas in 1959. And the movie version terrified him, but his dad assured him, thank God, nothing like that has ever happened to us. And then just a few days later, it did. So these murders completely shocked the city of Wichita. People started locking their doors at night and checking their phone lines. And the mystery of who did this and why was baffling the town and investigators. They didn't even know where to start. Like, Wichita was a very, like, uh, heart of America type place. Like, a great place to raise your kids, a great place to grow up. Um, I mean... Midwest living at its finest. So, yeah, this kind of thing didn't happen there. But then just a few months later, on April 4th of 1974, Dennis struck again. This time, it was Kathy Bright. Um, She was a 21-year-old college student who had just gotten home, and her brother, Kevin, was with her. When they got into the house, they were startled to find a stranger sitting in their home waiting for them. Creepy as hell. So Dennis didn't expect Kevin to be there. He had been stalking Kathy and was only expecting her. So when they both walked in, he held them both at gunpoint and told them the same thing that he told the Oteros, that he was a fugitive from California looking for money and a car. He tied them both up in separate bedrooms. And after making sure that Kathy was secure, he went to Kevin to strangle him. But at some point, Kevin broke free from the bonds and actually fought with Dennis. And Dennis pulled a gun out and shot Kevin twice in the head. He fell to the ground. So Dennis, you know, assumed like he's done. I'm going to go take care of Kathy now. Meanwhile, he had no idea that Kevin miraculously miraculously survived these gunshots and ran out of the house to get help. Can you imagine that? You've been shot not once, but twice in the head and you're running down the street. And you know that he's in there attacking your sister. sister. Yeah. So he tried strangling Kathy, but she was fighting so hard that he lost control over the situation and he went and grabbed a knife to stab her, which he did. And he admits that the whole situation, of course he admits this later, but he admits that the whole situation was just a mess, but he completely lost control over it. And at one point he heard the front door and thought for sure it was the police he was done for. But then he actually saw Kevin running down the street. So he hurriedly picked up what he could and just left. He jumped into one of the cars, but had the wrong keys, got into a different car. It was one of, it was either Kathy's or Kevin's. And then he left. He drove to... So they both survived? No. Kathy did not survive. Kevin survived, although he has very serious, debilitating, like life-changing injuries. But Kathy, she died. So he drove to the Wichita State University campus where he left his personal car. And Kevin, like I said, although critically injured, he was able to give police a vague description of the suspect. 
He told them it was a tall, white male. I mean, that's, that's it. And at the time, the police didn't connect this crime to the Otero murders because the method was so different. And typically, you know, serial killers keep the same, same mode of operations, right? So, Which it really wasn't that different, but... It just, it, it changed, which yeah. made it different. Right, yeah. exactly. So meanwhile, two inmates from a nearby jail started taking credit for these crimes. I don't know why people do that, like take crimes for, or take credit for crimes they didn't commit. I think they do it for like street cred. Clout. Clout, yeah. But anyway, of course this news hit the media and Dennis saw it and it enraged him. He was not about to allow someone else to claim bragging rights for the work that he had done. And he, he, one thing you'll find out about him is that he really lived for the recognition. He wanted to be noticed. So he wrote a letter to the Wichita Eagle, but he didn't send it directly to to them. Instead, he hid it in an engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. Then he called the newspaper to tell them where a letter was that described the Otero murders. In the letter, he described in detail what he did to the Otero family that only he would know. And then he wrote, I did it myself with no one's help. He wrote, quote, the code words for them will be bind them, torture them, kill them, B-T-K, end quote. He went on to say with many grammatical errors that I'm just going to correct so for the sake of fluency, he wrote, quote, I'm sorry this happened to this society. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up where this monster entered my brain. I will never know, but it's here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help that you have killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it. So the monster goes on and hurts me as well as society. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. Good luck hunting. End quote. Oh, my. Just a mockery of everybody. Oh, everything. yeah. Big time. He, <clears throat> he had a very grandiose... Um, sense of self. He thought he was a big shot. Well, in a way, but in a way he was, sounds like he was just extremely insecure and almost had narcissistic tendencies and that he, his biggest fear was being, having no power maybe. And Mm -hmm. that's why when somebody else took credit for his crime, he got offended by it. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he even, you know, and I'll talk about this later, but he even got a, a job as like a, Park safety officer. So, like, he would go around and measure people's grass to make sure it was an appropriate length and it was too long. He would write up citations. And then he would, like, get after people about their dogs. I mean, he was just, like, this rent-a-cop in a power suit and just totally, like, let that feed his ego. He felt no importance in his life. Yeah, I mean, he tried to find it in just the weirdest ways. So then Dennis kind of stayed off the radar for a few years, which may have been because he started a family with his wife. His first child was a son named Brian, which was born in 1975. His wife, Paula, remembered being really worried at the time about being home alone with their baby because of this BTK killer. Meanwhile, it was him. And Dennis assured her not to worry. They were safe. She has no clue. She just had a baby with BTK. No clue. That's crazy. 
three years passed without any sign of BTK. And I think Wichita was beginning to relax a little bit. Even investigators kind of wondered if he died or moved far away or maybe was incarcerated. That is until March 17th of 1977. So Shirley Vianne Relford was 24 years old at the time, and she was at home sick that day. So she sent her five-year-old son, Steve Relford, to the nearby grocery store to pick up a can of soup. Wait, this, did you say she sent a five-year-old son? I did. I know. Trust me. My mind was kind of boggled by that, too. When you said five-year-old son, Steve, not to derail this conversation, but when you said five-year-old son, Steve, you forget that everyone named Steve was once a kid, but Steve is such an adult name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you got this kid Kind of like Steve. Dennis. Yeah. And yeah. then Steve was five and going to get groceries by himself. Yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that she lived really close to a Dillon's supermarket, so... He was five. He was five. I mean, uh, this I is a different time, and, you know... Maybe it's normal. Wichita was safe, apparently, other than BTK, obviously, like, you know, ravaging the town. But, you know, trust me, that kind of, like, raised red flags to me, too. I was like, wait a second, I what? I thought you just said a mess up or something. No, yeah, I didn't. So anyway, he goes to the grocery store to pick up a can of soup for her. And on his way home from the store, he is approached by a man asking if he knew who the woman in this picture was that he was holding. The picture was actually one of Dennis's wife, Paula, unbeknownst to the child, of course. The boy said no, he didn't know who she was, and then walked on home. And moments later, there was a knock on the door, and little Steve answered the door to find the same man from earlier who just let himself in. Shirley came out to find this strange man just standing in the living room, and Dennis pulled out a gun and ordered Steve and his two siblings into a bathroom where he tied a rope from the door to the sink so that they couldn't open it. Dennis and Shirley both put blankets and toys into the bathroom to comfort the kids. And then she and Dennis both together shoved a bed up against the door for extra security. Then he undressed their mom, tied her up, but she got sick and vomited. So he went and got her a glass of water and said that he comforted her, comforted her for a little bit before he ended up strangling her on the bed. What a freak. Yeah. That is like disgusting and horrible. Mm-hmm. That's like the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life. So Steve says that there ended up being a little crack in the door because, of course, the kids were upset. They're trying to get the door open. And at one point, it cracked just enough where he could see what was happening. He could see Dennis on top of his mom. And the kids are screaming. They're threatening to call the police or, you know, break out the window. And um, one of Steve's older brothers actually did break the window in the bathroom. How old were his siblings? I'm not sure. I wish I knew. I I didn't even think to look that up, but they weren't much older. I think Steve might have been the youngest, but his older brother broke the window in the bathroom and started screaming for help, which scared Dennis off. And so he quickly gathered his belongings from what he called his hit kit and left. Left the kids in the bathroom. Yes. And Shirley was left on the bed. She was dead. So when investigators arrived, little Steve tried his best as a five-year-old to describe the man who just killed his mom, but his description, of course, was vague. And as Steve grew up, 
he's done interviews since then, but um, he was diagnosed with some severe mental issues stemming from what happened to his mother and the trauma. Oh, no, not surprising at all. No, he admits that he got into smoking dope and drinking too much. And you can tell in these interviews, he still is just not over it. I mean, how do you ever get over that? It happened at five years old. Right. I mean, you know, he's 50 now, probably um, around there. 45, 50 years old. So, you know, they say when you experience trauma as a kid, your growth is essentially stunted. Like your emotional growth is kind of stunted at that age. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he is just up against it from the very beginning. And I feel terrible for him. Yeah. Gosh, that's like the most horrible thing I feel like we've ever gone over. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you picture it and you think about how she was like, okay, let's just get this over with. And, you know, cause she thinks he's just there to rob them. Rob, rape. Yeah. And then gets her a glass of water. Like he comforts his victims before he kills them. Like, what is the point? It's like an extra level of torture because it's a mind fuck is what it is. Like you're comforting them and they, they start to think like, okay, it's going to be okay. I think. And then it's definitely not okay. Right. So in an attempt to not rile up the public, investigators kept kind of quiet about Shirley Vianne's murder because they weren't 100% sure that they were dealing with the same person, like the same killer. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be absolutely sure that it wasn't the same guy, or I'm sorry, that it was the same guy that they were dealing with, even though they felt pretty confident that it was him. And then on December 8th of 1977, the police department gets a chilling phone call from BTK himself. So I'm going to play so that how many, for you. How, how long is this after the last one? This is December. What time did that last case happen? Okay, so that was in March. So this is about of 77. It's about nine months later. Um, yeah, and then this was in December. Yeah, so nine months later. Okay. Yeah, so he calls the police department himself, and I'm going to play you that 911 call. I couldn't understand any of that. Okay, so I thought you might not. So I I know what is said so that I can kind of relay it to you. But um, he says, you will find a homicide, except he says it like homicide, at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox. And she's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And you can hear another dispatcher saying, I think he said 843 South Pershing. And he says, that's correct, and hangs up. So police go to Nancy's house, and they find her on her bed. She had been tied up. She was face down. She had a belt around her neck, and lying next to her was her robe that BTK had ejaculated into and discarded beside her. And the thing is, she had, he had actually killed her the day before he made that phone call. And so I think he realized nobody had found her yet. And he and wanted he so that's why he called to say, like, hey, I want to hear you guys talk about this. Go check out this house. Right. So this time investigators knew it was BTK, and they enlisted help through the media. They played the recordings of the man's voice on the phone to see if anyone would maybe recognize him. And they got some tips, but nothing led to an arrest or to Dennis Rader himself. Then... A letter shows up at Cake TV station. 
and it says, quote, how many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cops think all those deaths are not related? Josephine, when I hung her, turned me on, end quote. He went on to describe the rope tightening around her neck oh and gosh, all these this things. Is like, I don't know, like, listen to this shit. Right. I knew you wouldn't. Um, so I'm not going to include, like, everything else. He said it's sadistic. It's sick, twisted. I mean, it's like everything from, you know, that nightmares are made of. I don't watch scary movies because of this shit. Yeah. Like, not because I'm scared because I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, right. It bothers you. And it should. But um, he also notes that he almost gave the same fate to Shirley Vianne's three kids. He said, quote, you don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of factor X, end quote. He also offered some nicknames for the public to use. So as if BTK wasn't unique enough, he said, how about the Wichita Strangler or the Asphyxiator or the BTK Strangler, the Poetic Strangler or the Wichita Hangman? He's really thinking a lot of himself. Just making a game out of it. And making a game of it, yes. And then he ended the letter with, quote, seven down and many more to go, end quote. So this really put BTK on the map. Did people, did they broadcast that letter? They didn't broadcast the entirety of the letter, but at this point, residents of Wichita knew that the Otero family had been murdered and that there was another crime a few months later. But until this point... BTK wasn't public. It wasn't public knowledge that this person was doing this and he was considering himself BTK. The public didn't know that this was the work of an actual serial killer. Until now, it became clear that BTK wanted the public notoriety. So in an attempt to get him to work with police, they started communicating him with or with him through the news stations on TV, but to no avail because BTK went silent. See, this creepy asshole is is knowing people's patterns and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. uh, at one point, this is why you carry a gun. Yeah, like, this is why you carry a gun. So that way, if somebody's watching your patterns and you walk into a house and they're sitting there waiting for you, surprise! I have a gun too. Mm-hmm. Like, God, it's so infuriating. Yeah, I'm gonna piss some people off. I almost didn't say it because okay. there's gonna be some people who say oh, yeah, the guns. Like that, this is no, why. Like I, this is why you carry a gun. Like yeah. you have. And I'm to not saying yourself. that solves everything. Okay, I'm not. This is sadistic and disgusting and horrible. I'm just saying, like man, people like this exist. And do you think any of these victims ever thought they would be a right. victim of it's this? Horrible. Gosh, yeah. just, I, no one ever thinks it's gonna happen to them right. until it does. Right. So Dennis's daughter, Carrie, was born in June of 1978, which might have explained with, you know, BTK, like why he was, you know, kind of held at bay and he went silent. But it wouldn't be too long before he struck again. In 1979, he became obsessed and he had been trolling a woman named Anna Williams. She was 63 at the time. And on April 28th of 1979, she came home later than usual after hanging out with some friends. And when she got home, she noticed that her house had been broken into and her underwear drawer had been rummaged through. And then a few weeks later, she got a letter in the mail and it was a poem titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? So I'm going to read you this poem. "'Twas a perfect plan of deviant pleasure, so bond on that spring night. 
my inner feeling hot with propension of the new awakening season, worn wet with inner fear and rapture, my pleasure of entanglement like new vines at night. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop a fresh, I'm sorry, drop a fear, fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to scent to loftily fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the game we play fall on devil's ears. Fantasy spring forth, mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at the end. I don't even know what the hell this means. I don't either. I think he just thinks he's like a Shakespeare. None of it makes any sense. And I don't, I mean, I have a degree in English. I've read a lot of literature. This makes no sense. You can tell he's just, I don't think it's a good poem. I, I, it doesn't even, I just, I just have so many thoughts. It's creepy. It's weird. You can tell. It does a little bit. I mean. All right, finish it up. God. (laughs) (laughs) The last part says, alone now in another time span, I lay with sweet and rapture garments across most private thought. Bed of spring, moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm wind, scenting the air. Sunlight sparkled, tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again I trod in past memory of mirrors and ponder for why number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Sounds like it took a whole spiraling notebook. It sounds like just a lot of words. And it's creepy as hell. It's just a lot of words. And can you imagine how scared she was when she got that? Oh my gosh, Austin. So... BTK also sent a letter to Cake about his failed attempt to attack Anna Williams. So what happened was he broke into her house and hid in like her closet and waited for her to come home. And then when he didn't come home, he was running out of time. And he was like, well, I just need to get out of here. She's obviously not coming home. He was enraged. He stole some of her stuff, obviously wrote this shitty poem and sent it to her. And then reached out to Cake, because this was supposed to be his eighth victim. And the community was shaken by this. And Anna packed up and moved, because... Hell yeah. She's absolutely, understandably terrified. Yeah. I cannot She lived. Tell me she lived. She lived. Good. Yeah, I don't know where she is now. If she changed her name, I wouldn't blame her if she did. Creepy as hell. And see... Like, I, I say a gun comment. That wouldn't even help you. Like, they're cl- hiding in your closet. Like, what the? Yeah. This is just crazy. Yeah. So then another five years go by in Wichita with radio silence from BTK. And meanwhile, former police, police chief Richard Lemunyan has assembled a task force specifically de- designated to finding out who BTK is. And they've dubbed themselves the Ghostbusters because... In essence, they feel like they're searching for a ghost. They have no idea who they're even looking for. While the task force is busy creating a profile of their serial killer, Dennis Rader is living in Park City, which is neighboring Wichita. And he played an active role in his kids' lives, taking them fishing. He gardened with them. He was always going to church on Sundays, where he was actually the president of the church council. He worked disturbingly for the home security system, ADT, from 74 to 1988. So he's literally going into these people's homes and setting up their security systems. So if he had a victim or somebody, you know, picked out, he could just memorize their code. He's helping them set it up. 
And then he also worked, like I mentioned, as a compliance officer for Park City. And yeah, like I said, he would, he would go around. I mean, he had been interviewed on the news about people's dogs and, you know, his, his, you know, really heroic work as a compliance officer for Park City. Like he's this big deal. I mean, you could tell that he thought he was the shit in his Park City uniform. I feel like he would be like a Parks and Rec character. But anyway, um, when he lived in Park City, although it was right next to Wichita, it remained a really safe place. And residents felt like they were essentially removed from the terror that was, that was going on in uh, Wichita. So then on May 5th of 1985, 53-year-old Marine Hedge was found. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I'm just like lining out the timeline in my head. So the last crime was in 77. Mm-hmm. So now he's been silent for eight years. Yeah, his daughter was born. Eight years. Everybody thinks he's gone for sure. I mean, eight years. Almost a decade passes. Well, yeah, since he has killed anybody. I guess the letter that he wrote to Anna Williams was in 1979. So six years. So this was about five years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, on May 5th of 1985, 53-year-old Marine Hedge was found naked in a ditch after she'd been strangled to death. And nearby was a knotted-up pair of pantyhose. She'd been in the ditch for at least a week. And what happened was BTK had broken into her home and killed her on April 27th. Then he took her body to his church and posed her in various positions while he satisfied himself and took pictures of her body in his church. In his church. Where he's the president of, like, the church council. I mean, that is sick. So and then dumped her in it's, a ditch. Yes, it's such a slap in the face too to God to be like, I'm going to act like the president of the council. Everyone's going to trust me. I'm this churchgoer, but watch me bring in a body that I killed and pose it in all these weird positions, and then masturbate. Masturbate while I'm at it. I mean, this is the devil's work. So, um. Anyway, he had been planning this for a while, and he had actually stored black plastic sheets at his church in preparation for what he knew he was about to do. Marine Hedge lived only seven doors down from the Raider family. So this went on in Park City. Yes. So Dennis's wife and kids, they were all familiar with Mrs. Hedge. They would say hi to her as they passed by while they were all outside doing yard work. And what's even sicker about this is that when he did this crime, he was on a camping trip with his son's Boy Scout troop. And he was one of the dads that was like on the trip, you know, to make sure everyone stayed in line. After everyone went to sleep, he came out of his tent and went over to Marine's house, took her out of her house and killed her, and then did all that stuff with her and went back to the campground with all these boys went to sleep like nothing happened. And you know what's even more messed up is that while he was walking back, a patrol officer stopped him because it was like in the middle of the night and asked him what he was up to. And he said he was just going to the gas station to change his clothes because he was a dad staying with his Boy Scout troop and he didn't want to change at the campsite. And the officer was like, okay. Yeah. 
So about one year later, on September 16th of 1986, Bill Weggerly arrived home from work for lunch when he found his toddler unattended. He searched the house for his wife, Vicky, but couldn't find her right away, and he assumed that maybe she just went to run a quick errand and would be right back, but 30 to 40 minutes went by, and she still wasn't home. So he starts looking for her more intently, and he's getting worried, and that's when he found her in their bedroom. Okay, this is in the middle of the day, Austin. He found her in her bedroom between the bed and the wall, and it was really, the bed was really close to the wall. So, you know, when you walk into the room or when you just look in, you can't immediately see her. Right. But police immediately suspected her husband, especially because she had been there and he had been there for like 30 to 40 minutes, you know, after she had already died, never considering at the time that it was the work of BTK. And, you know, the thing about this, so he had, he named each of his victims a project. So it would be like Project Green for some reason or Project Cookies. He named um, Vicky's, you know, as a victim, he named her Project Piano because one day he was on his lunch break and he was walking by and could hear her playing piano. She liked to play piano for her child. And he heard the piano from outside and just, I don't know, gravitated towards that, I guess. So he started stalking her, memorizing when the husband left and when he came home, and made sure to to kill her within that morning window. So did did he like did this guy end up getting in trouble for it, or did BTK did they figure it out? He was considered a suspect for a really long time, and he was never you know found guilty or charged that I know of. But he remained under a cloud of suspicion for a really long time. And um, it obviously later came out because BTK admitted that he had killed Vicki Weggerly. But, yeah, I can't even imagine his grief at the time, too, finding his wife like that and then being the suspect of it. It's terrible. So then in 1988, three members of the Fager family in Wichita were killed. And it was assumed at first that this was, again, the work of BTK. So on New Year's Eve in 88, Mary Fager returned home from a trip to find her husband and daughters all dead. Her husband, Philip, had been shot in the back, and their 16-year-old daughter, Sherry, had been drowned in the hot tub. And then their younger daughter, Kelly, who was only nine years old, was strangled and then dumped into the hot tub. So yeah, this sounds like something BTK might do. But another letter was written by BTK to news affiliates saying he actually did not commit this crime, but admired the work of whoever did do it. It was later found that Bill Butterworth was likely the one who committed the crime, but the prosecution didn't build a strong enough case to prove that he did it, so he was ultimately acquitted of all of his charges. And although it was Bill who was building the sunroom on their house, and then after the murders, he was tracked down in Stewart, Florida, in the Fagers family car, they never found the murder weapon, which was the gun, or any other irrefutable evidence to convict him. So the Fager family still to this day has not seen justice for that crime. So there was a large span of time between Mrs. Hedge's murder and BTK's next known victim, because remember, the police had their eyes on Vicky's husband, not BTK. So this ultimately left the Ghostbusters task force no choice but to disband. And the case was technically considered a cold case, 
but it was still open, of course, and they just had no viable leads to the killer. And you have to remember, at this time, criminal, for, criminal forensics was just not what it is today. So BTK's final victim was a woman by the name of Dolores Davis, and she lived alone with her cats. She had a boyfriend, but they were not living together at the time. And on January 19th... Of How old was she? So Dolores was... 62 years old. Okay. And like I said, she lived alone with her cats. She had a boyfriend. They were not living together. So she was living alone. And on January 19th of 1991, BTK broke into her home by throwing a cinder block through one of her sliding glass doors. So Dolores's boyfriend eventually came by to check on her after he couldn't get a hold of her. And that's when he found that her house had been broken into. Her shoes were all piled up in her room, and her bed sheets had all been stripped from her bed. So, of course, he calls her kids to tell them that she was missing. I think he also called the police. I, I can't remember if it was him or the kids that called police, but somebody let them know that she was missing. Mm-hmm. Dolores was found on February 1st by a teenager under a bridge. She had been tied up with pantyhose and rope, and it was clear that BTK had tied the knots in a way where he could loosen them to bring her out of unconsciousness and then strangle her again. So he was essentially like... Hardcore torturing. Tormenting her. A porcelain mask was also found nearby. It was like this creepy mask with makeup painted on it. And other than that, the police didn't have much evidence to go off of. And this was in Park City, not Wichita. So it wasn't immediately assumed that this was BTK. But then a few months later, Dolores' son, Jeff, got a letter in the mail from someone claiming that the same person who killed Maureen Hedge and Vicki Weggerly probably killed his mom and that he's sure his mother was just terrified. And it is believed, well, we know now, that this was written by BTK. So he's even tormenting the victim's families as if it's not enough. So some other creepy details about this case is that um, he had dumped her under the bridge. And now that I'm thinking about it, I might have gotten my, um, my story confused about him being at the camp. Either he went back in the middle of the night for Marine or he went back in the middle of the night for Dolores. I can't remember now. Now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm starting to doubt myself. That's okay. The gist of the story is the same. Yeah. So, you know, when he had killed Dolores and taken her and placed her under the bridge, he eventually went back to visit her because he said that he didn't have enough time to appreciate. Yeah, this is the story. I'm so sorry, you guys. This was when he had killed her whenever he was on the Boy Scout troop. And he didn't have enough time to, like, really enjoy himself with her dead body. And so he ended up going back later, like, days later. She's already started to decompose. And he had a hard time essentially getting, you know, excited because of the way that she looked. So he went home and got the mask to put on her face, thinking that that might help because maybe her face was starting to kind of distort. Uh So that's why the mask was found there. And later when the pictures came out of him, you know, binding himself for his erotic asphyxiation, he would be wearing that same mask. 
So like he had this mask for a while, but then took it to Dolores to try to see if it would help him. But then he could never, uh, he admitted later, he could never pleasure himself. It just, he just couldn't do it with her. And so it was all just a waste. Oh my gosh. I'm just like jaw dropped this whole time. I haven't said anything on like the last two because I'm just sitting here like, what the heck? Yeah. So 27 years went by without any murders and the cases were all still unsolved and they began to grow cold. And over time, it appeared that BTK was kind of becoming a thing of the past. He's still married. Still married. In a good relationship? Yeah. I mean, we think? Yeah. Uh, by all accounts, it was a good relationship. Kids are growing up. Everything's yeah. normal in the old Raider household. Yep. Except for Dennis is a freak. Except for Dennis is a fucking sicko. I'm going to... I can say that. I can say that. I can say the F word right now. <laughs> I can. Sometimes that's, it's warranted. It's warranted. That's crazy. Yeah. So, a lot of people thought that maybe he moved or was incarcerated or dead, But when Dennis noticed that people at news stations were talking about BTK less and less, he had to do something about it because, of course, he's got to stay in the spotlight. So he wrote a letter to the Wichita Eagle. In in like 2007 or what? Where are we at here? 2000? Yeah, early, I'm sorry I always ask. No, 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 you, okay. you do such a good job of getting details, so it's not like... It's, it's I, early I mean, 2000. I just like trying to picture, as sick as this shit is, I like trying to picture when, how old these people are, what's happening. Yeah. So early 2000s. It's like 2004. That's it, whatever it is, that's fine. Yeah. So he writes a letter to the Wichita Eagle, and in this letter, he described how he killed Vicki Weigerly, the victim who everyone else thought was killed by her own husband. And he also included pictures of Vicky that he took and her driver's license, which had been stolen the day of the crime. The return on this letter, like the return address, was Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. So this reignited some of the fury in investigators. So at this point, another new task force was created. And this time, they are led by Lieutenant Ken Landwehr. And now we got technology, better forensics, cell phones, cameras. Yes. And they assembled an entire... Like operation with the computers and the phones and and everything. Because that's what I've been thinking this whole time. Sorry Mm -hmm. to interrupt you. I've just been thinking this whole time that I don't know that this person would have gotten away with this over and over in today's world. Oh, definitely not. Cameras everywhere, Mm -hmm. everywhere. Phones, cell phone records, DNA, DNA. Everything. Like everything's different. Yeah. So like I've I don't know crap about crime. But I've been around this long enough from you mm-hmm. to know that, like, this would have gone down different in 2000s, 2010s, sure. 20s. And maybe that's why he slowed down. Maybe he realized that DNA evidence was, you know, really making strides. And he was like, I probably need to quit fucking around because I'm going to get caught. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. Um So, yeah, Ken Landwehr was heading this whole operation. They had this whole command center, and they received over 700 tips in the first two days. And also, at this point in 2004, DNA evidence was way more beneficial as it took a lot less of a sample to test DNA. So at the time of the Otero murders in the 70s, DNA evidence was not even a thing. And then in the 80s and 90s, you had to have a lot of DNA 
in order to test, like you had to have a lot in a sample in order to test it. And then once you tested it, the sample was gone. So like, God forbid you test it and it doesn't yield the result that you're looking for. Cause then it's gone. Screwed, yeah. And when the Otero murder, or I'm sorry, when I think it was the Otero murders, or maybe it was Nancy Fox. When one of the murders happened in the past, it was it's Vicky. okay. No, don't worry about it. Just keep going. It was Vicky Wegerly. Sorry, some of this stuff is coming. There's off so the top many of, my of them. Head. It's fine. I know it's easy to get them confused. I think it was Vicky Wegerly. There had been DNA found under her fingernails, and it was a tiny amount. And I think there was talk about testing it, but it was so few that they were worried if it didn't come back with the result they wanted, then their test sample would be gone, and right. then they'd be screwed. So they didn't end up testing it. But, you know, they still had the evidence from the Otero murders. They still had the semen that was found on that pipe. And they also still had... They still had this in 2000s? Yeah. They still had the evidence from the Otero murders. And they also still had the robe that Nancy Fox was wearing with Dennis's or BTK's, whatever, In the early 2000s, they yes, still have all they this? they hung on to all this evidence. Because it's, it's not a closed case. It's a cold case. But it's not closed. So, yeah, right. they still have evidence. I mean, at the time, of course, they didn't know. Would there still be DNA and like, the semen on the robe from Probably. 30 years ago? Yeah, as long as it's well-preserved, which I'm sure it would be if evidence and forensics is taking care of it. You know, if they bag it up and store it away, I mean, I, I can't imagine that that stuff just kind of vanishes into thin air. Right. Wow. Um, so... Now, in 2004, so many advancements had been made that they were able to test the DNA from the crime scene of the Otero murders and Vicky's murder and tie it to the same criminal. So they were, they had a match. They didn't have, you know, who it matched to. Well, they already knew that, but now they verified but now it's it with confirmed. DNA. Yeah, okay. So they ended up collecting almost 2,000 samples from persons of interest that had just come through in tips or hearsay or whatever. They tested 2,000 people in this case. Every single sample eliminated those people as suspects. But it was coming much more apparent that the police were on to BTK and he needed to be worried. So on May 4th of 2004, the Cake TV station in Wichita received a letter, another letter. This time... How were, old is this idiot? Sorry, I know you're probably not going to go off the top of your head. <laughs> I don't know I, how I'm old he was This is how my brain works. I just want to keep picturing this dumbass so I can picture him. So hold on, look it up. Yeah, okay. So um, he was born in 45, and then this is in Okay, uh, so he's around 60. Okay, yeah. well, then he's around 60. So that's, that's all I wanted to know. Yeah. So this old idiot is still getting his rocks off, sending these letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's sitting there in his living room, massaging this stress ball to enhance his grip so that he can strangle strangle people better. And he's watching the news, and it's like he became friends with the news anchors because he started communicating with them a lot in this span of time. He wasn't killing in this span of time, but he was talking a lot about it. So anyway, he returned, or I'm sorry, he sends another letter, and the return address this time was Thomas B. King which is TBK, but whatever. This letter was just a list of chapters for a potential book, a table of contents on the BTK story. And the chapters were, one, a serial killer is born, two, dawn, three, fetish, four, fantasy world, five, the search begins, six, BTK's haunts, seven, PJs, 
I don't know why you would name it PJs. I have no idea what that's referring to. Eight, Moid Ruse. Nine, Hits. Ten, Treasured Memories. Eleven, Final Curtain Call. Twelve, Dusk. And thirteen, Will There Be More? Question mark. Thirteen chapters. It sounds like the Twilight trilogies. Like, I think that is the corniest trilogy. Like I never got into Twilight and I can't even watch it to this day. I think it's so corny. I can't stand Kristen Stewart. This is, this is screaming Twilight to me. Like dawn, fetish, dusk. Like, dude, get over yourself. (laughs) Nobody's writing an autobiography on Dennis Rader. Like you're some really inspirational man. We should all inspire, aspire to be. So anyway, on June 9th, a clear baggie was found taped to the back of a stop sign on a really busy intersection in Wichita, and in the back was a graphic description of the Otero murders and a sketch labeled... Who found this? Just a random stranger. And it was labeled, the sexual thrill is my bill. Like, get some new material. You've talked about the Otero murders enough. You've, you've come up with these sketches. Like, it's just really so bizarre. So are they publishing this stuff to the media? Not everything, but they do let the media know when they've received new communications from BTK. So They let the people know. Yeah, the people know that he's speaking out. On July 17th, one month later, another letter is left at the Wichita Public Library. It had been dropped in the book return slot, and this time the letter was claiming responsibility for the death of Jake Allen earlier that month. But this was later proven to be false because that death was determined to be a suicide. Although I'm curious, like sometimes suicides, you know, or or homicides can be made to look like a suicide. Was there any similarities in it? I have no idea because I I didn't find any information on that. But I just thought that was bizarre. And it could have been someone pretending to be BTK. You know, like there's a lot of copycats that just get a thrill out of that. So October 22nd, another letter is found, and this time it's a short version of BTK's life story, detailing his childhood and the first time his mom spanked him and how much he just loved it. So BTK had been really vigilant about watching the news. Like I said, he kind of felt like this relationship with the anchors. And if he wasn't killing, he was feeding off the attention that he was getting in the media. If he wasn't stalking victims, he was stalking the news, specifically Cake TV. And the two main co-hosts were Susan and Jeff at the time. And during one of their segments... Just they, real quick, I'm sorry. What is Cake TV? Is it like a Wichita news station? Is yeah, it like an it's, MTV? it's K- K-A-K-E. So, you know, like in Kansas City, they have KCTV5. Like, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so theirs is Cake. K-A-K-E. So anyway, the two main co-hosts are Susan and Jeff at the time, and during one of their segments, they mentioned to the weatherman that they hope the weather gets nice because they've been battling some colds. And BTK, two days later, sends in a postcard and says, sorry to hear about Susan and Jeff's colds. Can you imagine being those anchors and like getting that? And the letter came from BTK? Yes. But like, did it say it was from BTK? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that has to just be terrifying to know that he's, like... Stalking you. Stalking you. He's watching you, and you have no idea who he is. You don't know what he's doing while he's watching you. Like, I don't want to know. 
So then on December 13th of 2004, a man walking in Murdoch Park discovers a package. And in the package was Nancy Fox's driver's license and a Barbie doll that was all tied up with a bag over its head. And it was tied up with the same color of rope that he had used. It was all in the same positions as Nancy was found. So this was clearly a doll to represent Nancy Fox. The next communication was almost completely discarded. So BTK had left a message inside of a cereal box and then put it into the bed of a truck at a Home Depot parking lot. And it was an employee of Home Depot who owned the truck. He found the box and just threw it in the trash, not thinking twice about it. And then he left for vacation. Well, when nobody on the news mentioned this cereal box, BTK sent a postcard to Cake saying that there was another message waiting for them at 69th and Seneca Street, and also to let them know if they received communication number seven and gave the address of the Home Depot. So police, of course, go to this intersection. Cameras. Well, yeah. So police go to this intersection first. They find a cereal box perched up against a stop sign. And on the box, he wrote killer underneath the word cereal. He's so clever. I don't know how he got mediocre grades. I mean, he's obviously an expert poet. He's so smart. In the box was another Barbie doll. And this doll had a noose around her neck that was tied to a little pipe, which was obviously depicting the murder of young Josephine Otero. So meanwhile... He's just taunting the police. He's taunting investigators. He's taunting the media. Like, he's just getting such a thrill of doing this, like, scavenger hunt type of cat and mouse game. So meanwhile, police are still interested in finding that box that was left in the Home Depot employee's truck. So they post a bulletin inside urging people to come forward if they have any information on this box, if anyone saw the box. And they review the security camera footage from the parking lot where they can see an unidentifiable figure leave the box in the truck and then drive away in a dark Jeep Cherokee. So when the employee gets back from vacation and sees the bulletin, he goes home and searches his trash. And miraculously, since he didn't move the trash to the end of his driveway, it never got picked up while he was gone. Can you imagine... They were about to send out all the new police recruits, like the rookies, to go dig through a landfill to search for this box. And they found it. And then he calls and is like, hey, actually, I have the box. Like, it didn't get taken. So he, the police immediately come and they take the box. Um, it was still intact. And inside is a little strip of paper. And at the bottom, it says, quote, can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer be honest, end quote. With floppy? Like a floppy disk. Do you know what a floppy disk is? Yes. Okay. That's just, I'm just like thinking, how could you even communicate? What does he mean, can I communicate with it? I don't know. I'm assuming he wanted to send them some files or pictures or just another way of showing them his evidence. Uh-huh. Be honest. This old ass man doesn't know a damn thing about technology. Too old to do his weirdo stuff anymore. So now he's like, can I send you a floppy disk? Will you be able to track me? Well, and it's like... Can I be traced? If you even have to ask, you probably shouldn't do it, you dummy. Like, if you even have to ask, of course, of course you can be traced. But the police run an ad in the Wichita Eagle that responds to this question saying, quote, Rex, it will be okay, end quote. 
Rex. So like that was his, their way of like identifying BTK and like sending a message to him. Like he was supposed to see that and know it was a message to him. And all Why did they was, say Rex? Rex. I don't know. What I can't remember. Mean? Okay. Just somehow they're translating to him. So they don't say yes or no. They just say it will be okay. So two weeks later on February 16th of 2005, a package is delivered at Fox TV affiliate KSAS TV in Wichita. So this is a different station. This is not cake. This is a different one now. In the package was a letter, a gold-colored necklace with a large medallion from a past victim, a photocopy of the cover of a book called Rules of Prey, and then a purple Memorex floppy disk. So computer forensics take the disk and they run it through their computer software. They find that the disk came from Christ Lutheran Church in Park City. Where the victim earlier was brought. Yes, and where he was a president of the church council. And on that file on the disk was created by a user named Dennis. So they Googled the church. Holy shit. They found him. Sure enough, on their website, under staff leaders, the president of the congregation is a man named Dennis Rader. Holy Toledo. So they immediately drive to the address that's associated with Dennis Rader. And sure enough, there is a black Jeep Cherokee sitting in the driveway. And BTK is found after how many years? 30. Holy crap. So here's the thing, though. They didn't arrest Dennis in that moment, like right in that moment. They wanted to be 100% sure that it was him. And the only way to be 100% sure without any doubt is to get his DNA, right? So they go to K-State where his daughter was a student. And they get a search warrant to obtain her medical records from like their, their student medical facility. They get a sample. So they didn't even knock on his door. No. They just, they started watching him yeah. and surveilling his house. And meanwhile, they go get a sample from a past pap smear of um, Carrie's, his daughter, and they retrieve her DNA from that sample. They send it off, and two days later... Does she know that's happening? She has no idea. She has no idea. She's in Michigan at the time, She's living and mm-hmm. working as a substitute teacher. She has a husband. Mm-hmm. So... Two days later, they got confirmation that finally, after 30 years, they have a match to the DNA left at those crime scenes. Dennis Lynn Rader is the BTK killer. So on February 25th of 2005, police descended on Dennis's home and they pull him over right as he was approaching his home for lunch. They pulled him out of the truck got him onto the ground, and as they handcuffed him, an officer reportedly asked, Mr. Raider, do you know why you're going downtown? And he responded, oh, I have suspicions why. Can you let my wife know I'll be late for lunch? Oh, my gosh. You're not going to be making it to that lunch, Denny. (laughs) hate to break it to you. He was then put in the back of a cop car with Lieutenant Lanweir, the lead detective on this case, He's in the front seat. Dennis is, of course, in the back. And the first words out of Dennis's mouth were, Hello, Mr. Landwehr. He knew exactly who he was. He was ready to be, he was ready to be caught. I think so. 
So after his arrest, the FBI had the task of informing his family of what has happened. His daughter, Carrie, she's living in Michigan. She gets a knock on her door from an FBI agent. And the agent is like, are you the daughter of Dennis Rader? She says, yes. Are you familiar with BTK? And she's like, are you talking about like that serial killer from Wichita? That's your dad. Oh my gosh. They literally had to sit her down. I mean, cause she instantly was like, going into shock, of course. Her husband had to come home and console her. Like, can you, I I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine that. They have video of her wedding with Dennis walking her down the aisle in their church that she grew up in, that he had been attending for years and years and years. And nobody knew that whole time he's standing up there in a tux that he's the killer everyone's he's worried the about one that everybody's after, like freaking out about yes he's dressed in k-state t-shirts with his jorts on and his new balance tennis shoes looking like every other basic dad in the neighborhood but there's one difference he's a serial killer like Austin, try That's to wrap your head around that so I gotta know about uh, do you know have any other stories of any other family members getting told? So his wife, his wife Paula, didn't believe any of it at first, and she was really defensive at first. And of course, the community was absolutely shocked. His church was dumbfounded, and one of the employees at Cake TV station was a member of the congregation at Christ Lutheran Church, could not believe that, babe, months prior, members of the congregation were interested in getting a tour of the Cake's TV studio. Dennis Rader was on that tour. He was standing right there in front of, or I guess behind all the cameras, but in front of the stage where... Where he'd been stalking on TV the whole time. Yes. He was there. He was inside the station. This guy was like so demented on so many levels. Yes, but also so elusive. That's what's creepy about it. Yeah. Um... So members of the community remember Dennis as this compliance officer for Park City, often going on these power trips and, you know, giving up these citations for frivolous things. So there were some people who were like, yeah, I remember that guy. He was a dick. He was arrogant. He was really unpleasant to work with. He had a huge ego, treated people like crap. Like a lot of people remembered him that way. So some people were kind of like, yeah, it makes sense. He was a douche. Mm Mm-hmm. But during his interrogation, he told investigators exactly where they could find a ton of evidence. It was essentially a catalog that he kept. Memories. No, 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 no attorney, I take it. No, he didn't ask. He was literally so forthcoming. At first, he was like, Kent, why did you lie to me? Why did you tell me I could send you a floppy? I thought we had a good thing going. Oh, my goodness. And then just dumped it all. Yeah, and then he was like... He wanted to be this celebrity. Oh, he wanted it. He wanted, babe, like, I'll, when we're done here, I'm going to show you videos of his um, the confessions and the way he spoke in court because it is just... I assume there's so a million nonchalant. documentaries. Oh, yeah, there's a ton. But he's so nonchalant. He's like, well, with Nancy Fox, let's see. And he, like, clicks his tongue. He's like, I can't remember exactly. Like, he's just... There's no empathy Empathy is completely void. Weirdo. Yeah. And imagine his daughter finding oh out. Oh, my gosh. I I mean, the devastation. She's had to go through, of course, years of therapy, but she's a lot more vocal about it now. The son is really quiet about it. Like, there's no 
interviews with him. I mean, he probably doesn't want to be associated with him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, She's the, pro- they're probably all what in their fifties. No, no. 30s? Carrie, I think, is younger. She was born in, I think, sev- late 70s. Okay, so 40s, 30s, somewhere in there. Yeah, she's not too old. but um, 50s, I guess, geez. In one of the interviews, she talks about a time when her brother was, I think, around 21 and got into a fight with Dennis over something at the house. And Dennis snapped and put him up against a wall and started choking him. And they had to, like, pull him off of him. So when they think back to that time... They're like, holy shit, like those same hands strangled a ton of other people to death. Right. And, you know, at the time too, like you have to realize the way they grew up was like a pretty average household. Like your uh, middle income, what am I trying to say? Is that... Like middle class, just like working class, middle class America. Yeah, just Just like... American average, dream. Yeah. yeah, I mean, with the exception of him strangling his son at that point. But, like, babe, they grew up with a totally normal remembrance of him. Like, the dad being involved in Boy Scouts. And they have pictures of Dennis holding Carrie up to put the star on the top of the tree. And he's, like, on these fishing trips. And he's wearing K-State gear. And it's just like, just oh, my dude. God, it's so mind-blowing. You literally see, like, people in our neighborhood who resemble him. And it's like, I would never have guessed that that's what this guy would look like. And I think that's what shocked a lot of the community members, too, because they pictured him as being something way different, way more monstrous. And the fact that he was just this real average-looking dude. I mean, now you look at like, him and he's, his eyebrows, he looks he looks scary. But you, uh, like, the whole time, in my opinion at least, you picture that California killer. What was his name? Yes, the Night Stalker. You picture Richard the Ramirez. Night Stalker. This dude that, that dude, I, I got goosebumps thinking about the episode. Somebody, you need to go back and listen to the Night Stalker if you haven't listened to it, mm-hmm. everybody. Because the Night Stalker is like... A really good-looking dude that whenever he went to... Until he opens his mouth. Until he opens his mouth. That's what I was going to say. But he's a really good-looking dude until... And and when he went to prison, all these chicks fantasized about him. Yes, gross. But yet, when he opened his mouth, he looked like this creepy-ass killer meth head. And like all of a sudden, it was like... It was almost like... I don't know. It was like he went from looking like a heartthrob to like... I don't know, someone who would just rip your heart out and eat it. That's what you picture, at least I do, when I picture this guy. And then I look at the picture you posted of him, and he's just this old sack of crap. Yeah. And, like, even the pictures of, you know, in 2004, that was a more recent picture, so he looks a lot more old now. Mm -hmm. Apparently he suffered a stroke. So maybe he looks a little different now, but then he looked like just your average dad. So... Real quick, if you would go on. So what what happens? What? Yeah. So he leads them to their house. Like, he tells them where to go to find more evidence. And um, there were, like, little places hidden. So there was, like, a floorboard that you could lift up where he was hiding some of the evidence. They found Polaroid pictures of him dressed in women's clothing, bound up. He would... God, what would his wife think when she sees those or their kids? Can't even imagine. I, I can't. Sorry, okay, go ahead. No, it's okay. They found flashcards where he sketched out his fantasies of bondage and torture, like literally just these sketches. And then they found the Polaroids of his victims, including Marine Hedge, propped up and posed within the church. Um, and then they found the selfies of him dressed in women's clothing. Sometimes it was in clothing that belonged to some of his victims. 
He was bound with bags over his head. He photographed himself like this in his basement, out in the woods, and even like buried outside. Like he would bury a hole or dig up a hole and then just lay in it and take pictures. Can you imagine walking up on that in the woods like this creepy guy just dressed in women's clothing with a bunch of ropes around his knees? Like, oh, oh, sorry. How's it going? (laughs) How's, yeah, yeah, nice weather. Uh huh. Are you okay? I'm all right. Do you need any help? Gosh. Yes, sir. You need lots of help. So, Dennis Rader's wife was granted an emergency divorce. These typically take about 60 days, but given the circumstances, the judge granted it the same day. He was charged with 10 counts of first degree murder on February 28th of 2005, and his bail was set at $10 million. He, yeah, he shouldn't even have had a bail. You know, like, I thought like, that too. That doesn't. That's a bunch of crap. So if somebody comes along with a million bucks, they can bond him out. Like, what a bunch of crap. I can't imagine anyone would, but you just never know. Nobody did. So yeah, I'm just saying it's crazy that there's even a bond. Like, mm-hmm. it, to me, it's like, yeah, like such a money cases. hungry. To me, it's such like a city being like, oh, we want some money. Like, yeah, but you hear of cases that are like, oh, he. Is held without bond. Right, and this guy killed 10 people and tortured the cops forever. But you know what? A million bucks, you can get him out. Yeah. So he pleaded guilty to all of the murder counts against him, and the judge ordered him to detail all of the murders, which he did unapologetically and so nonchalantly that if you watch his recollections of each crime, it will make your jaw drop. He literally describes it like he's just... Describing like a road trip that he took or just like what he had like for lunch that day. Yeah, yeah, it's so, I mean, with less enthusiasm than a football game, honestly. Like, it's just, it's mind blowing. He was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences because the death penalty was not an option at the time. And after the victim's families gave their statements in court, Dennis got up to give his statement, but before he started, All of the families got up and walked out, not wanting to hear what he had to say. Like, the minute they knew he was going to get up and give his statement. Can't blame him, because you know the lunatic's not going to apologize. No, and And I love that they didn't give him that power. Right. Yeah. Um, So he gave a 30-minute speech that the He gave a 30-minute speech? Mm Mm-hmm. Babe, the entire speech, he's, like, likening himself to the victims. He's like... Oh, Julie Otero has kids. I have kids myself. Or, you know, Joseph, he liked to fish and I like to fish. Like, he's literally relating himself to the victims. It was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting. And the prosecutor likened it to an Academy Awards acceptance speech. He showed no emotion, no regret. And on August 19th of 2005, He was transferred to the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas, where he will likely remain in solitary confinement in an 8 by 8 cell for the rest of his natural life. He gets one hour of exercise five days a week in a fenced-in area and then three showers a week. Nobody is talking to him. Nobody is eager to communicate with him anymore. The fear and the shock and the thrill of BTK is over. So he's still alive? He is still alive. That's insane. I've seen the prison where he's staying, and it's, like, eerie to know that he's in there. Man, that's so wild. Yeah. 
Dennis Rader has been diagnosed by a psychologist as having narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders. I don't think anyone is surprised by that. He still believes that he was just a good guy that did some bad things. He was a good dad, a good neighbor, good churchgoer, good Boy Scout leader. He just, you know, had this factor X. Nobody can explain it. But, I mean, other than that, he's a good guy, Austin. He is the longest-running serial killer in U.S. history. And Dolores Davis's son, Jeff, described Dennis Rader as a social malignancy. I think that's just an astute observation. To call him a social malignancy, I think, is really pretty perfect. So I list sources in every episode within the episode script, which can be found on our Patreon feed. And while I did get my material from multiple sources, the majority of this information was obtained by watching a three-part documentary titled BTK Chasing a Serial Killer on ID Discovery. So I just want to put that out there. Um, It's obviously very detailed. Each episode is at least an hour long. So I suggest it if you want to watch it and, you know, put faces to the names um, and to all the investigators, give credit where it's due. That's that's where I got it. That was freaking insane. I can see how, like, everybody and their brother would know about this except for me because that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have much else to say. I don't You did either. a good job I mean, on this episode. Thank you. Thanks, I, everybody, for listening. Yeah. Thank you very much, and we'll see you uh, next week. I feel like I just interrupted you. Oh, no, it's okay. I guess all I was going to say is that it really hit close to home for me because I just remember when the guy got up on the news and he was like, BTK has been arrested. And it was just this, like, holy shit moment. I was a junior in high school, so, like, I remember thinking, like, holy cow, like, this serial killer from not far from where we live was just arrested. And, and then, I just I just remember living through it. I mean, you were like an infant at the time, so you don't remember, but <laughs> Anyway, that's why I'm so intrigued by it. Mama. Mystery. <laughs> Out. Bye.